Hi, I'm Leedon Hines, and this is How to Fall Apart with the Irish Cancer Society. At the age of 33, Trina Cleary discovered a lump in her breast. I talked to her about living with incurable stage 4 breast cancer, about deciding against breast reconstruction surgery after a mastectomy, body acceptance, coming to terms with her diagnosis, and how she manages the fear. The Irish Cancer Society's Cups Against Breast Cancer campaign is down 68% on last year's registrations. Funds raised by this campaign during October support breast cancer patients throughout the year with free services including the Irish Cancer Society's support line, their volunteer driving service and free counselling. Last year the Society funded more than 2,700 counselling sessions for people affected by breast cancer. You can help fund these services and back vital research by making a donation at cancer.ie today. We'll just talk through your story, if that's okay. Um, we, yeah. might, we might start, so you were 33 when you found your lump, is that right? Yeah, I found my lump um, when I was 33, just by self-check. Mm-hmm. Um, I always self-checked from a very, very young age, um, as young as like early teens, and I've no idea where yeah, I saw this idea that, came yeah. from. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I did it anyway, thankfully, you know, um, it's something that I was always aware of, I'm not sure what I was looking for, but yeah, I found a lump when I was 33, ignored it, um, thinking that I was too young, that I was too fit, and that cancer was something that would affect an older person rather than someone who was 33, mm-hmm. heading for 34. Um, so for about six months, I ignored it. Eventually went to the doctor because I just couldn't ignore it anymore. It was getting bigger and then I was starting to get more symptoms like dimpling and my nipple was inverting and um, just a visual difference in both of my breasts. Mm. So I went to the doctor in August 2018, um, got an appointment for about 10 weeks later, um, which brought us up to October, I think it was the 17th or 18th of October. Um, and that was the day that I had my appointment with the breast clinic and it was that very day that they were able to tell me that it was actually breast cancer. So they, like they, even before biopsies and that were sent off, um, they were able to tell me that it was really? breast cancer. And who was with mm-hmm. you when they told you? Um, me, my mum and my sister always kind of came as a trio any time that I had a, an appointment, obviously pre-COVID. Mm. Um, so the two of them were with me, but my mum was actually in the room because I could only bring one person in inside mm. to the ultrasound room. Mm. So she was with me when they actually said, yeah, it is, it is cancer. Okay. And at that stage, obviously, they weren't able to tell you how far it had gone or what stages were or anything like that? No, no. Mm. Um, we still had to wait, I think, another couple of weeks before the biopsies came back mm. with kind of what type it was and mm. stuff like that. And then the usual scans to see if it's progressed any further. Um, and at that stage, it was in a couple of my lymph nodes um, when those of those came back. But on those scans, it hadn't progressed any further than that. So I suppose that was the, the positive to that result. Okay. okay, so what happened next then? Did you start treatment? Yeah, um, they decided that chemotherapy would be the first um, first of the treatment plan, which I was... I celebrated that as a almost a mini win um, because I wanted to be strong enough both mentally and physically, um, starting this journey. And I felt if they had decided surgery first, I would have been dealing with a lot of mental issues in regards to my body changing mm. from surgeries and stuff like that, as well as what chemo would do to me. Mm. So we celebrated chemo as a mini win um, when we got told that's what would happen first. So I had eight rounds of chemo mm. and that started quite quickly. It started in November um, and went on till March 2019. Mm-hmm. Um after that, then I had a lumpectomy in April, 
um, that was unsuccessful. So they came back and they left the decision up to me if I wanted another lumpectomy or if I wanted to go ahead with the mastectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, the lumpectomy wasn't likely to be um, successful, they said. Um, but still, it was really it was a really hard decision to make. And just to say it out loud and kind of, I suppose, put the final nail in the coffin and say, yeah, and I just take it. Mm. But um, I did. And when I did, I felt a, a weight being lifted. I decided to, to go for the mastectomy and I opted for no reconstruction. Mm. Um, so I had that, that in... Decision? Um, yeah, I think when I first got diagnosed, I went to worst case scenario and yeah. I thought I'm going to have a mastectomy. That's mm-hmm. how it's going to end up. Should have went with my gut really um, when that came about. But I kind of made peace with it very early on. And then I said, if that is the case, I'm going to just embrace the hand that I've been dealt and to try and make a difference to somebody else and show that, you know, you don't have to have two breasts or whatever just because society deems it you know, um, visually appealing to have two breasts, you know what I mean? You can be just as perfect and just as beautiful with one. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to instill confidence in someone else who might not feel as confident as what I did at the time. Um, so, yeah, kind of just using my journey to make an, uh, make a difference to somebody else and hopefully, you know, help them see that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not an ugly thing, you know. Um, I love my scar. I absolutely adore it and I love showing it off, as I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, um, you post pictures on your Instagram account. And what kind of response do you get? Um, yeah, I've never had any any negative. Um, I do get having a wild panic attack whenever I post do one because I'm like, oh, am I going to get? Yeah, am I going to get reported or do you know like am I going to offend God, someone? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's never my intention that it's like to upset not. anyone or offend anyone. And so then it you're is hugely helping shock. people, to be honest. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's just the shockability factor is what I go for, and people to kind of go, oh my God, like mm-hmm. she's so young, maybe I should check myself. And mm. um, but the response that I get is amazing. Like people mm. are just so, like, just so warm and towards all my posts, and it, you know the amount of messages I get saying I checked myself and I've got an appointment because of you, you know, and that kind of makes everything worthwhile. Do you know everything that I'm doing? So tell me what happened then after you had the mastectomy. What happened next? Yeah, um, after that then obviously was recovery time and then they had decided for 25 rounds of radiotherapy. Um, so I started that, oh I can't even remember what day it was, but I finished it towards the end of August anyway, 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the easier of, of all the treatments to be fair, like you have the tiredness mm-hmm. and I did burn, but within two weeks it was just kind of back to normal skin and you mm-hmm. know, I kind of listened to my body and rested and I was, I was fine again then, you know. Okay. And so then were they able to say to you at that point, had they had they cleared the cancer or what did they, what were they, what, where are they on that? They told me in June. Um, so after my mastectomy, mm-hmm. they told me that I was cancer free in June. Okay. Um, this is something that I was delighted, obviously, that they told me I was cancer free, but it didn't sit right with me either. I was like, are you not going to scan me again? Like, how do you know? And they kind of said, well, we got clear margins and, you know, what, you know, it hadn't progressed any further than your lymph nodes. They were clear and um, when we took those out and stuff. But I celebrated, but I felt guilty almost for celebrating. And um, because I felt, yeah, because I felt like, how do they know? Like, are they sure that they got it all? Hmm. Um, and, you know, as it turned out, like my, my gut feeling again was right on this mm-hmm. um, because... When I finished my chemo in March, I had a pain in my thigh, kind of high up in my thigh bone. And 
they kind of, you know, they checked it out and stuff like that. I wasn't ignored when I brought my concerns, Mm -hmm. but it was kind of just like, oh, maybe it's leftover chemo damage or something like that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not in sinister is what they were saying to me. And like fast forward then another year and it was actually cancer in my hip bone and my thigh and my neck as well. Um, So I don't know if I had been scanned in June, would they have picked something up? Could it have been prevented? I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's still something that kind of it didn't sit right with me and it ended up being you know my gut was right you're right and at that point mm-hmm. then you had a hip replacement I did yeah um, that was in May this year I think it was I don't know the month of all kind of blurred into one the in COVID and not really year. doing much okay, okay. <laughs> yeah May of this year I had a half hip replacement mm-hmm. um, just it was a a preventative surgery rather than curative um, and it was just to stop my, my hip bone shattering or breaking because it was being replaced with breast tissue and that's how it was described to me. Um, so basically a hard bone was being replaced with, with soft tissue and my hip was at risk of breaking. Okay. Um, so they done the half hip replacement which I'm almost recovered from. I'm getting there like um, six months later but um, shortly after that I ended up in hospital again Um because I wasn't able to manage pain in my neck, which is also where my my tumour is as well. Okay. And it turned out that I actually had a fractured C2 spine. So I had been walking around from maybe February this year um, until May, I think, with like a fractured spine, and I didn't know. <laughs> okay, and so you, you didn't know. Sorry, that actually took my breath away. <laughs> were you, were you, um, in a, you were in a lot of pain? I was in a lot of pain. Um, I just kind of accepted it um, because I didn't know any different. I'd had radiotherapy to that part of my spine and they kind of said, you know, you should be about 80% of your pain should kind of, you know, it should decrease a lot um, after the radiotherapy has stopped working or whatever. Um, but the pain never, it never decreased. It, uh, it got worse if I was taking painkillers every day. Um, it got to the stage where everyone was really, really worried about me because... I just wasn't myself. Like, I didn't realise how miserable I was until I wasn't in pain anymore. But my sister actually took initiative and rang my oncologist, who's an absolute heaven on... He's an angel on this earth. Um, He said straight away, get her down to A&E and get her admitted so we can get a CT scan. Um, So they were just so worried about me mentally. Like, it just really, really ground me down. Um, and when they done the CT and X-ray and stuff like that, it, it actually came back that there was a fracture in my in my C2 spine. So I was treated for a spinal injury. So I was laid down. I was in a neck brace, and I couldn't move until I got, you know, the, the okay from the the powers that be that, you know, there was no spinal compression or anything like that. There was no risk of um, being paralysed. Um, and now I'm fine. <laughs> I still have a little bit of pain, but, you know, everything is kind of healed up. I stayed in my neck brace for about two months, I think, okay. um, just to stabilise it. And it just, yeah. I think things kind of just healed up themselves that way. Can you describe now the cancer that you're living with? Yeah. Um, so it's incurable, um, stage four. Mm-hmm. It's my hip bone. I have two places in my mid spine and then I have my C2 spine. Um, my hip, like that surgery, it's still kind of recovery, not a massive amount of pain. I'm not taking any painkillers at all now for about a week. For the first time in probably a year, I'm not taking painkillers. Um, my spine doesn't really affect me too much. I've always had kind of um, 
not a week back, but I would have back pain, mm. um, uh, especially when I stopped training and exercising. Um, so I'm kind of thinking it's more pain from not exercising rather than tumor pain that I get in my spine. And then my C2 spine, so it's kind of up nearly behind my ear, kind of. Um, that's more like a stiffness rather than a pain. Um, it's just kind of, I can't fully look to the right of me. Um, okay. It's just very stiff, kind of like creaky, like it's a crick, crick in my neck or something. Um, but with medication and everything, any treatment that I've had, it's kind of, I'm just managing. Um, I'm trying to just get on with life. Can you remember okay. at what point? They told you that it was incurable stage four or was it something that was kind of gradually broken to you um no they told me i when i went up about my neck mm. they done a ct and a full bone scan and then they wanted me to go for an mri and they told me literally the next day they said come up we want to see you in clinic mm. and i knew i kind of knew myself then um and year? my oncologist yeah yeah mm. that was this year yeah and sorry you said um, yeah, he just told me, he said, look, it's after going to the bones and it's incurable. Um, straight away, I asked the prognosis and he said, years. He said, you have years, don't worry. Okay. Um, so, you know, that's something that I've, it's positive and, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll worry about whatever yeah. comes next. Yeah. You have a little boy, don't you? Yeah, well, he's not so little. He's nearly, he'll be 14 now next year. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> not, not little at all. Um, so he was probably he was about eleven or twelve when this all started. Yeah, yeah. Can you can I ask how you've kind of managed his knowledge of what's going on and kind of telling him and talking to him about it? Yeah. So the first time around, my mom actually told him. Um, I was just too upset to tell him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I wasn't as strong in October 2018 as what I am now. Um, so she told him and, and kind of explained things to him as child-friendly as she could without worrying him. Mm-hmm. Um, but we kept it very, very normal. Um, we didn't kind of keep anything from him. You know, if I was going to the hospital, he knew I was going and he knew why I was going. Mm. Um, and once he knew I was coming home, he was fine. Um, it was so normal that his school used to let him come down to the office when I was getting chemo and they used to let him ring me um, just so that he knew that I was okay while I was getting my chemo so we chat for a couple of minutes and he's like okay that's grand I'm going back to class now so he like just it just put his little mind at ease and he didn't worry mm. um, and he just has he's got such a big support system around him as well like he's so many people that he can speak to mm. um, in regards like his dad and his side of the family and then my side of the family as well mm. um, but the second time around, um, I told him myself and I just said, look, it's something that's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going anywhere, but it, it is something that's always going to be there. And again, we just keep things really, really normal. I'd be like, I'm going to hospital say, what are you going for? Okay. You know, he laughed at me when I sent him a picture in hospital saying I'm not coming home because I was wearing a neck brace. So it's just so normal to him. Like, it's not... It's not a secret. It's not worrying for him. Um, and I think that's just the key when it comes, especially like an older child and um, like teenagers, just keep things normal and open and, and not whisper like. Yeah, completely. Um, you touched on it there a minute ago um, and you've written about this on your Instagram post about di- your kind of acceptance around your diagnosis. And almost mm-hmm. that before you, like you said there a minute ago, you knew there was something wrong. There was this fear. It's here. It's back. And. Mm-hmm. in a way there was just a slight element of 
Well, I knew this this anvil was going to fall on my head and that slightly helped you with accepting the diagnosis, if that's accurate. Can you can you tell me about yeah. that? Yeah, I suppose, like, I lived in nearly constant fear from mm. June 2019 until April 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every pain I felt, you know, everything that I felt straight away I was afraid that it's back it's back it's back Mm. whereas when I did get the diagnosis it was almost like a relief and it was like almost like a weight had been lifted and I was like right the thing that I feared is here it's not going anywhere what do we need to do to handle it what do we need to do to deal with it you know give me a plan and I'm I'll run with it you know what I mean once I have a plan I'm sorted Mm -hmm. and so yeah once I did get the diagnosis because I kind of half expected it, I wasn't as, now obviously I was distraught, like it, it's a terrible thing, but nowhere near as upset as I was for the first time. Um, and again, I think that just comes back to the strength side of things as well. Like I've grown so much over that, you know, over the last couple of years. Mm. Um, but yeah, it is, it's just pure acceptance. Um, it is what it is. No amount of crying or worrying is going to change my situation. Mm. Um, so I just kind of have to handle business. And you said there about strength. Um, is is in helping to kind of grow that strength was that just a matter of going through more and more stuff and time passing or were there things that you did that have helped you to um grow stronger you had a beautiful post where you talked about the darkest times and you described it as being like at the bottom of a really deep well Mm -hmm. and you were surrounded by darkness but there was a tiniest the tiniest pinhole of light and you held onto that and you focused on that and I wondered if you could tell people a little bit about how you did handle those darkest times yeah, um, so that came from when I was on chemo, which I found the hardest of my entire journey. It was definitely the hardest, mm. especially the last few rounds. Um, oh, and yeah. like I've, I've spoke openly about it on my post where on one hand, I was afraid to go to sleep um, in case I didn't wake up. But then on the other hand, I wanted to go to sleep and not wake up because I was in so much pain. Like I I can't even describe the pain that I was in just from the chemo. Um, and... The one thing that I did, like I said, like you said there, I had this tiny, tiny pinhole of light that I focused on and it was so far away. I was down the bottom of a deep down well. I felt so helpless and weak and nearly every negative feeling that you could feel, I felt. But as the days went on and kind of things got a little bit lighter and a little bit brighter and I got a little bit stronger, that light just got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And I think the one thing that I always said to myself was today is just a means to an end. Tomorrow is a brand new day and these are just 24 hours. You know, tomorrow is not going to be as bad as today. Mm -hmm. And just kind of keep pushing forward that way and inching closer and closer to that light. Um, I suppose it's the only thing that I can say about it. Um, It was, it, it was incredibly hard, but... I just think that's a really good visual representation as well of of how we feel. And other people have said to me as well, that's exactly how I felt. But it is just, just keep reaching for the light. Just keep going and keep going. And the bad feelings fall away and, and you know, they're forgotten about almost. And you just keep looking forward to the next day, which, you know, is just going to be that little bit better. Might not be amazing, but it won't be as bad as how you felt yesterday, you know. Do you think um, one of the things that has made you get stronger is realising the stuff that you've already got through? Um, and kind of knowing, yeah, knowing hind- you know, that you can get through things. You know, you yeah, hindsight. Looking back, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, they say you only look back to see how far you've come. And, you know, 
my Instagram has been a great um, tool for that because mm-hmm. I can look back and two years ago I look at myself and I'm like my smile doesn't reach my eyes I, like I'm not I'm just kind of existing almost mm-hmm. um, and I'm a shell of the person who I am now um, do you know my mom even said that she wouldn't ex- expected me to be the strong one she thought it would have been my sister like mm-hmm. um, she didn't expect me to be strong at all um, and I've just shocked them and I shocked myself as well because like if you had told me two years ago that I would be going through all of this mm-hmm. myself and helping other people I'd be like go away with that no way no way would I be able to do that like mm-hmm. um, so yeah it is looking back and just seeing how much I've grown through each stage and kind of been dealt another blow and kind of dusted myself off and got back up again mm. you know it's just yeah look back and see how far you've come mm. I feel very proud of yourself um, you, yeah. you talk a lot about and you mentioned it there about how you would have exercised a lot and you I know you said you were in the gym I think six days a week and that's not something mm-hmm. which obviously is a very good mental kind of aid to coping um, aid to coping mental health Um you can't do that now and you've written a lot about kind of acceptance around that and acceptance around how your body has changed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I would have been in the gym like that four or five, six days a week. Would have looked after my diet really, really well. Um, I was kickboxing um, for about six, seven years. So between like competitions and stuff like that, you would have been having to mind your diet. So, you know, you would have been had to be quite strict um, so I had to learn how to lo- love my new body because obviously like when you stop working out your muscles just go and mm-hmm. you know obviously you fall into bad habits with COVID being stuck indoors and just not eating the best um, but yeah no like I've accepted that I won't ever get to go back kickboxing again um, I it is expected that I can go back to other exercises that I used to do so I used to do a dance class I used to do Mm. an aerial fitness class and I used to walk a lot like climbing mountains and stuff like that um well I don't mean climbing now I used to walk them (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that good (laughs) but um like I will get back there it's just I'm very in tune with my body and I know when I can push it and when to stop so it's just not my body will tell me when it's ready to go back to that Mm. kind of thing um so I will get back to it is part of it as well um, finding things that bring you back to a sense of who you are and who you were before this started? Mm-hmm. Is that important? Yeah, definitely. Um, like there's the saying, like, I have cancer, cancer doesn't have me. So mm-hmm. I suppose my whole life shouldn't revolve around cancer. And mm-hmm. I'm very stubborn in the sense that I'm not going to let it stop me mm-hmm. climbing that mountain that I want to climb or going back to my dance class or swinging out of an aerial hoop if I wanted you know I'm gonna do it now unless my oncologist like Trina stop <laughs> um yeah. but yeah I'm determined to not let us make decisions for me as such mm. as much as possible you know with that being said I have to be wise about my choices as well I don't you know I don't want to break another bone or anything like that so mm. you know do what I want to do but still be mindful and be safe on that is there is there anxiety in that sense of like having to mind yourself um, and especially, I suppose, um, now that we're living in COVID, um, I saw you put you you posted something the other day about your frustration um, mm-hmm. at, at the moment. That must be very challenging. It is. Um, it's really annoying that people are publicly um, flouting the recommendations that are given. Like I. You know, I don't leave my house a whole lot. I might go shopping or I might go out for dinner once a week or something like that. Like, but I wouldn't be mixing with 
huge groups of people or, you know, bringing anyone relatively new into a group or anything like that. It's always the same people that I'm with. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing people, you know, getting off on holidays or, you know, going to events and not social distancing or going partying or having house parties, it's really, really annoying because these people have their lives. They don't have any worries. I... And I've said this as well on my Instagram and my mother will go mad when I say it because it really upsets her. But I'm watching the sands of my time trickle away and just watching my life drift by and not knowing what's around the corner for me. And I'm not getting to fulfill anything that's on my life list. And yeah, it's selfish, but I want to leave memories behind for everybody and make memories for everybody that I love. And people are just being really disrespectful to people like myself by going out and doing that like mm-hmm. um when all you need to do is wear a mask mm-hmm. all you need to do is just keep your circle small you know and don't be going to parties and taking part and if you're doing it don't be so rude by posting it publicly like you know mm-hmm. do it in secret if you're going to do it like mm-hmm. but yeah no it is it's very upsetting and it's very frustrating and I don't like engaging in the negative feelings that come with it mm-hmm. but I just I got really really angry and that's why I posted that post because I'm not one for holding things in mm-hmm. Um, I just I like to get them off my chest and get them out and then it's dealt with and it's gone you know Is anger something that has come up for you over this just anger over the diagnosis in the first place? Um, I don't know if I'd say anger Um, more sometimes not often but I will be like why me? You know, what What have I done? Mm. You know, what did I do to deserve this? You know, and that's, I suppose that's more a self-pity kind of feeling rather than anger. I don't think that's, um, think that's really understandable. Yeah, yeah. But no, I don't really get angry um, how about do you, it. How do you because, get through it when you do feel like that, that why me feeling? I say, why not me? You know, and then I go, I'd rather... I would rather it be me than my mom or my sister or my best friend or you know it's, I'd rather it be me going through it than any of them to have to go through it. I'd rather take I'd rather take the hit than them. Yeah. How has COVID changed your treatment in the sense of you know you said you and your mom and your sister come as a threesome, but obviously that's not the case now when you're going in when you had, for example, your hip replacement. Um, yeah. How are you finding that? It's really tough, um, especially when I was admitted to hospital. I found it really, really hard because it was right in the middle of, of COVID, like when no one really knew what was happening. Mm. Um, I found that really, really hard. Appointments, I can kind of deal with, you know, if you're getting results, you're allowed to bring someone with you. Mm. Um, but appointments for like bloods and kind of scans and stuff, I don't mind. I can do that by myself. Mm-hmm. But when it came to like the hip replacement, I was in for four days. And then um, when I got admitted with my fractured neck, I was in for another three days, I think it was. Um, so obviously, like, you're not seeing anyone, especially because, like, my family and that are really close, so we see each mm-hmm. other every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it really, really hard and really frustrating because the nurses would say, oh, we'll wheel you down to the front door so you can see your family. And then another nurse would be like, no, you're not allowed. But people were allowed down to go smoking. So I was like, yeah. what if I just say I'm going for a cigarette? Like, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, no, it is. It's that's kind of the only thing that's affected me. It hasn't affected my treatment at all. Um, but just hospital visits, you know, hospital stays is the hardest part. I think, and I think anyone who's had to stay in will agree with that. Yeah. Um. As well as your family supporting you, your partner is supporting you. Can I ask? Were you guys together long before you got this diagnosis? No, only about two months. Um. Oh, okay. But we, yeah. But we, like, we go way back, like, we knew each other about eight years ago and we had a thing that didn't work out. 
Um, so it was almost like we're nearly picking up from where we left off as such when we, we kind of got together earlier this year. Um, but when I got diagnosed, I said to him, just go. Do you know, I don't expect you to stay. Um, because it was a fresh relationship, I, I wouldn't expect anyone to kind of hang around. Um, but he was like, no, stop telling me to go. I'm not going anywhere. And he's been great now in fairness to him. And he he described um, the kind of things that you, he does to um, support you. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, yeah, one of the major things was communication. Um, so, like, we would go for a lot of walks and we talk a lot about things and we kind of don't shy away from the difficult conversations. Um, you know, he's like, if I cry, he cries. Um, if I need a rant, he just sits there and listens and tries to be the voice of reason, like, and kind of talk me down if I'm having a rant. Um, but yeah, communication was the massive one from him and just that he hasn't changed mm-hmm. towards me from the start of the relationship to now. Um, if anything, like, he's a lot more, I suppose, hands-on and more, just more everything, you know? You're experiencing the medical menopause at the moment, Trina, is that right? I am, yeah. Yeah, what is that like? Um... It, I don't know, it's normally, like of a normal day, it just, it's me and that's it. Um, nighttime is what I struggle with, um, so I have no problem in falling asleep, but I wake up and I'm absolutely drowned. It's like someone's throwing a bucket of water over me, and that could happen three, four, five times a night where I just get up and get changed. I have to sleep on a towel so that I can just take that off and put another one down if I need to, because I'm literally dripping. It's like I've got out of a swimming pool. That's what I'm struggling with a lot, um, is the hot flushes. So I suppose, like, if I'm out and about and I'm having a hot flush, I get even worse because I'm like, oh, people want to look at me and think, oh, look at her, she's sweating to that. Do you know, like, mm. just worrying what people think about me mm. that don't know me. Mm. Um, but other than that, like, I don't get, I know, like, some people who go through the menopause normally say that they get very, like, you know, you can get angry and mm. stuff like that. I don't get any of that. I, I cry at the drop of a hat. Mm. <laughs> I could cry watching the soaps or something mm. like that. But mm. other than that, it's literally just the hot flushes at night time that absolutely just rule my life. <laughs> Have you had counselling at any stage? I did go for counselling um, after my first diagnosis and they kind of, it, it didn't really work out. I didn't feel like I was getting anything from it. And I think uh, another counsellor said to me that it's probably because I'm so open and I have so many people that I can speak to mm-hmm. and then I, I do my blogging as well. So if I can actually vocalise how I feel, mm-hmm. I can write it down and get it out of my body that way. Um, so, like, I've even spoke to a psychotherapist and she said, look, your coping skills are really, really good. She goes, like, you have my number if you need me, but I don't feel like I need to be in touch with you quite regularly. So, you okay. know, I'm kind of, I'm happy okay. enough yeah. with that. Um, I think we've all struggled in the last six months with um, being kind of cut off from a lot of the stuff that kind of help us keep, you know, mentally buoyant. Um, and I would imagine when you're dealing with something as big as this, that makes it even more challenging. How have mm-hmm. you found that in terms of just, I don't know, switching off from this situation, if that's possible? Or, you know, because like you said there a minute ago, I barely leave my house. So what's how, how is your kind of your your form and your mental health on a daily basis at the moment? Yeah, I mean, out of a month, I might have maybe maybe one or two days mm-hmm. um, that wouldn't be great. Okay. Um other than that, like like I said too, like I'm not I don't sleep great. 
but I wake up and I have energy and I am quite, you know, happy in myself and I kind of just potter around. Um, I'm kind of used to my own company, so there's no one here all day and I'm kinda, I kind of like that. I enjoy it and just having my own company and just partnering around and doing my bits and what I have to do in the house and stuff. Um, but like that, I do, if the weather's fine, I do try to get out for walks. Um, where I live, there's quite a lot of beaches around and stuff like that. So I love being by the sea. Um, so even my mom's like, there's a beach kind of at the back of it. I go down there. That's where I spent a lot of my childhood. You know, if I felt any kind of way, I go down, sit down there for a minute and just kind of watch the sea. Okay. Um, so that's kind of one thing that I would do to kind of cope if I'm not, if I'm feeling just in a bit of a funk, um, just sit by the sea and, and just kind of take it in or just get out for walks. Because like I said earlier, just exercise is great for, for your mental health. Like, yeah. yeah. How long are the um, periods between your checkups now at the moment? Um, I get scanned every three months. Okay. So I've just only had my my first scan as such since okay. I've been diagnosed and gone through everything. Okay. Um, I had my first scan there and the results only two weeks ago, I think it was. And what was the anxiety um, like coming up to that? Do you know what? I only had one meltdown because I thought <laughs> I got paranoid because I thought my oncologist knew what the results were and wasn't telling me yeah. until he saw me later on. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't the case at all. It was just that there was a massive backlog. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had one meltdown, but like that, I got up out of bed and just made myself get dressed and just get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just kept telling myself no amount of worry is going to change the, the outcome of the, the scan results. Mm-hmm. So I can worry about it and be miserable or I can just get on with my normal day and deal with it when the day comes then. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned just lastly a bucket list that you keep. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask what kind of things are on it? Yeah, I don't call it a bucket list. Um, I call it a life list. So the reason I do that is it's just trying to put a positive spin on it. Mm-hmm. So rather than looking at something to do before I die, I want to do something while I'm still alive or while I'm alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few things have been ticked off. Um, it's a very humble one, to be fair. There's nothing crazy on there. Um, but I suppose the most craziest was probably to meet my favourite band, um, Picture This. Um, they're from Kildare and it actually happened only a couple of months ago they came down it's the only time they've ever done this they travelled down from Kildare to Wexford and they played a couple of songs for us in a local hotel here in Kilmore Quay and it was just such a surreal moment Um, I still can't believe that it's happened Mm. but um, that was just one of the major things the other things really are kind of just just seeing Ireland and travelling especially now that you know, Ireland nearly needs our money in the country. Yeah. So kind of doing your staycations, as they call them, um, and just kind of traveling mainly around the West because it's just so beautiful over there and I haven't really been over there. Um, so that's a, a big one is to go over to the West of Ireland and kind of travel around. Um, another one then is to go to the Salty Islands, <laughs> which are just 10 minutes away from my house. It's shameful that I've never been. Um, <laughs> so that'll be arranged for um, next year in the summer. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's a lot of travel. Just a lot of travel and making memories. Um, I'd like to do a skydive, but I don't know if my medical team will agree to that. <laughs> so I might have to nominate someone to do it for me. Um, yeah. Uh, what else? Just stay in really quirky places like um, like a treehouse and mm. stuff like that and 
Um, I stayed in a 200 year old, year old lighthouse last weekend down in Yall. Um, so like we're getting little things ticked off, you know. Yeah. Just lastly, um, if anyone was listening to this who had got this diagnosis and they were just facing into it, um, is there anything you would say to them particularly about um, how to try as much as possible not to future think, you know, to kind of go down the rabbit tunnel and overwhelm yourself, yourself yeah. with what might, what might happen? Yeah. Um, like I said earlier, like no amount of worry is going to change the outcome. Um, all you can do is just deal with it as it's dealt to you um, and kind of live in the present moment, like just be present and slow down, just enjoy the little things in life um, in regards to just dealing with the diagnosis itself. Just have people around that you can speak to if you don't have that, you know, like that there's always um, counsellors and stuff with the Irish Cancer Society or your local cancer centres. Um, so just there's always, there's always someone that you can speak to don't feel like you're alone because you're definitely not alone in it. Um, there's always someone that you can reach out to. And even I myself, my DMs or my, my messenger is always open to anyone who wants to message just just to speak to someone. That's all That's all it is. It's just speaking. Just get it out of your body. Okay. Trina, thank you so much for talking to me today. Every cancer story is unique, but hopefully the interviews for this series will prove that there are threads of commonality that can be pulled from each, which can provide support. I hope that this episode has brought you some level of comfort if you are experiencing or know someone who's experiencing breast cancer. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed on this podcast, you can contact the Irish Cancer Society Cancer Support Line on 1800 200 700 or visit cancer.ie. This series is in conjunction with the Irish Cancer Society as part of this year's Cups Against Breast Cancer campaign, which is proudly supported by Centra.